There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped at 10th and Ranch Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon. You guys believe it's already May 7th? It happened to be a beautiful day today. Welcome to tonight's show. We're going to be covering uh, how technology is used by the prosecution in these, these cases, the big cases, of course, that we cover. And with that, you know, many people, of course, accuse us of being so pro-prosecution, and probably the truth is, yes, we are, because that's where we come from. We're from the law enforcement perspective, but we don't ignore the defense, nor do we uh, not realize what the defense's job is in these cases, which is, of course, to create doubt, because we all know that in this country, to convict someone, you have to convict them beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's where the rubber hits the road. What is reasonable? And I'm not going to uh, sit here like I'm a law school teacher and teach you what is reasonable, but there, there is a reasonable man statue. What is reasonable? You know, not everyone in this world is reasonable, you know? So we're going to show some of the tactics that prosecutions use and some of the technology, of course. Now, technology is just, you know investigative genetic genealogy it is paving new pathways new ground uh allowing people to be convicted of crimes they committed 20 or 30 years ago the technology with dna is just it's it's just amazing how far it has progressed since i believe it was the early 80s or the middle 80s when it was first used at least in new york state it's come so far. Now there's schools that teach investigative genetic genealogy. And again, I'm in no way qualified to teach that. But And then we have, of course, uh, digital forensics comes into play in basically every case. The biggest cases we followed here, Alec Murdoch, digital forensics was huge. Of course, the Brian Koberger case and the Idaho, the, the murders of the four students. Uh, Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, uh, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. I don't like to ever refer to them as the Idaho Four. They're real people. Anyway, the digital forensics in that case is incredible. And some people that follow this, and maybe people that aren't experienced in the criminal justice business, they may have a problem with that, that realizing that the digital world has jumped into the criminal justice world. And it hasn't just jumped in with one foot, both feet are in it. And it's, if law enforcement doesn't understand digital forensics, then they got a real problem because it comes into play in just about every single case. And with me tonight, <laughs> I have two of the best to be on this show. And they both happen, happen to be attorneys. And the first is, of course, actress, retired attorney, and mother of five, 
the great attorney, Melanie Little. How are you doing tonight, Melanie? I'm great. Happy Sunday, Bill. I think that when you show up on the screen, the numbers just jump automatically because <laughs> people love to see you on the show, and including oh. me. And of course, uh, another person we have tonight who is, I, I call him like the man of reason. He's really well-spoken, soft-spoken professor. And uh, when I get a little emotional, Mike is always even keel. He reminds me of the guy in the radio car whose coffee never spills, even when they're going to a 1085 or a 1013, because that's how cool he is. So welcome to the show tonight, NYPD retired sergeant and professor at Albertus Magnus, Mike Geary. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Hey, Billy. Good evening. Good to see you, Melanie. You Thank too, you for having me on. Well, I think everyone's happy to see you guys, and uh, including me. So it's great. Let's let's get right. Let's get right to the the facts of the of the case now. Recent, I mean, just very recently, the New York Times wrote an article about how the prosecution has an unfair advantage over the defense, and this has been suggested by by many, not just legal, the Legal Aid Society, because they have more money. They have more resources. Techno technology will deal with law enforcement when, when they won't deal with the defense. Melanie, your thoughts? Well, I think a lot of that is true. I think that, you know, the uh, district attorneys in most states have way higher budgets than the legal aid in most states. And so they can afford the software that's required to do the analysis. They can uh, afford the expert witnesses that are needed to authenticate all of these things at trial. And, you know, there is a lot of truth to that. You know, a private defendant always who has a lot of money is going to be in a better position than someone who's represented by legal aid. So there is some truth to that. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Melanie. Um, they, you know, the, uh, all, all the uh, prosecutors, they have the burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. They're going to need tremendous amount of, uh, of budget. And if you've, even if you fully funded a, uh, um, a legal aid office in a particular county or particular city to the same, that, uh, the same amount that you uh, budgeted to a prosecutor's office, um, you know, would that mean that uh, you'd have uh, less, you know, you'd have more justice where p people who were actually innocent would would uh, get a better trial, a more more fair trial? I don't know about that. Um, yes, I do believe that you should have greater funding for, um, you know, uh, public defender's offices. But obviously, because the public defender uh, and uh, the, the defendant's attorney does not have the burden of proof uh it's natural that the money, I'm sorry, that the, the, you know, technology that's going to be employed is going to be employed mostly by the prosecutor and be paid for through the public coffers. You know, Mike, there's no doubt, and we can all roll our eyes at this, but there's no doubt that the richer you are in this country, the better defense you're going to get because you can hire private attorneys that's right. who are the hired guns, who are the most experienced attorneys in the law profession. Just like, you know, if you're wealthy, you're going to get the best doctors. That may not be true if you're an insurance patient, you know. You're not going to get the top surgeon or the top allergist or the top cardiologist, the top kidney doctor, any of those things. So the reality is, yes, the money talks. And as we say in New York, bullshit walks. But, uh, you know, you know, there's the ideological bent of that. Everyone should get a great defense. Yeah, we all agree with that in theory, but in reality, that's not always true. Melanie? 
You know, I think, uh, especially in New York City, I think that we are catching up. You know, I think now that uh, legal aid in New York City is starting to catch up. They now have a lot more technology. They have a lot more uh, resources for digital type of forensic evidence. But I think that when you get into other states, uh, smaller counties with not a lot of money, I think you're going to find a lot more disparity outside of, you know, the bubble in which we live of New York City. It's, it's a lot different. But I took me off the screen, too. What are you doing? <laughs> I gave you the whole screen. You know, I, I know I sent it to you guys, but there was a very interesting op-ed after the Murdoch verdict. And it was uh, written for, in the New York Times uh, by a guy named Farhad Manju. And uh, he had a problem that the uh, jury came back so quickly in the Murdoch case. They came back in three hours. And he had a huge problem with that. And he was citing what he felt to be the unreliability of digital evidence when really the exact opposite is true. Mike? Yeah, anyone who thinks that like the jury never, the jurors never speak to each other the entire trial and even discuss it all until they actually get behind the jury's uh, the d deliberation room after they're charged by the judge at the end. No, they, they, the, uh, I think there was like 20, several, over 20 days of testimony in the Murdoch case. Everybody's forming their impressions the very first day with the very first witness, whether they think they're uh, credible or not. Um, and they talk among themselves and there's nothing wrong with that. So by the time the, uh, they get to the very end, and remember, at the very end, at the end of the defense's case, they brought the jurors to the crime scene. And for some jurors to actually see the crime scene um, in person, to walk there and to see the, the space we're talking about, uh, did someone get shot 20 feet away or was a shooter over here or over there? That actually sealed it for many of them. Um, so for somebody to say that there was a, some sort of over-reliance on, uh, on, dig on, on digital evidence uh, when the jury actually had been at the scene, um, I think it's foolhardy. Maybe that person didn't, doesn't realize how the court system works, and maybe they actually believe that the jurors are not allowed to discuss the case amongst themselves until the judge tells them to do it. I just think that person's inexperienced. You know, I want to read a, an excerpt from him. Uh, the Murdoch trial lasted almost six weeks. The prosecution and defense called more than 70 witnesses. The jury began deliberating after lunch on Thursday and reached a verdict by dinner time. I have little quarrel with its decision, but the lightning speed with which it came to its conclusion about three hours makes me deeply uncomfortable with how the criminal justice system might deal with all of the digital effluvia. That's a good word, effluvia. I would have no idea what it meant except in the way that he used it. Being spooed by our devices. Unlike the jury, apparently I worry that the evidence or devices uh, produce uh, uh, just as easily muddy the picture of a crime as clarify it. Murdoch was convicted of shooting to death his wife Maggie and their 22-year-old son Paul near the dog kennels on the family's vast estate in Culleton County, South Carolina, in June 2021. There were no witnesses, and the police found little forensic evidence to tie Murdoch to the crime. They did not recover any murder weapons or any blood-soaked clothing, and because the murders occurred on Murdoch's property and he touched the bodies when he discovered them, he says he felt Paul for a pulse and touched Maggie on her waist. The evidence of his DNA found at the scene 
proves little. Instead, the prosecution's case stood on two pillars. First, Alex Murdoch's dishonesty and crookedness. He has admitted to stealing millions from his clients and law partners and lying about his actions to almost everyone, including to the police in this case. Prosecutors say he killed his wife and son to distract from his financial crimes, a theory I found dubious the murders only added to his scrutiny. Now, I mean, it was an interesting article, yet, mm -hmm. as you say, Mike, written by a probably a misinformed and an inexperienced person in regards to crime and criminal justice and how it all works. Melanie. You know, the crux of his argument was that because there was so much digital forensic evidence that the jury could not possibly have considered all of it because they only took three hours to deliberate, which I think is a weak argument at best. They sat there for six weeks listening to this stuff. They, are, they did not leave their common sense at the door, which is what I like to say about every jury. They know how to connect the dots. We've discussed this before, but it was that Snapchat video that sunk him. He lied about being at the crime scene. And once that evidence was discovered, he had to change his whole story. So for this guy to say that they couldn't possibly have considered all of the evidence because it didn't take them long enough is a horrible argument, I think. I think they, they did exactly what they were supposed to do. Absolutely. Mike? Yeah, I think um, we should also keep in mind uh, that uh, sometimes the forensic evidence actually exonerates the defendants. Mm -hmm. We've seen that. And like I remember I was thinking the other day about the Mike Nifon case with the Duke lacrosse players. They were exonerated by the uh, the evidence that of uh, uh, from the uh, the crime lab when it came to their DNA presence uh, on, on the victim's clothing. So the, it, it cuts both ways. And for people to say it only favors the prosecution in every single case, I think is misinformed. Maybe they would like to see uh, um, a, a, a different sort of trial where we have um, instead of, you know, a 90% conviction rate, we have a 50% conviction rate. I don't know. But so long as the evidence is absolutely scientifically accurate and, and we know that it's not allowed into trial until it passes the Dow, I think it was a Dow chemical case, um, in terms of its reliability, um, we should hesitate to criticize evidence that can cut both ways. Uh, evidence from cell tower pinging of phones to la lack of fingerprints to DNA being, you know, all of these things actually can help the defense as well as the prosecution. You know, Mike, the big thing that we learned about also in uh, in both of us being college professors, uh, you still are, I, I, I was, I'm a has-been college professor, but um, was something called the CSI effect. Mm -hmm. And the CSI effect is a real thing where juries are tainted nationally by the amount of crime shows that are on TV that show law enforcement and prosecutors doing things on TV that they, they're not capable of doing in real life. Like they have that easy button. You know, how many times do you see on TV that they get the license plate on the car? I've never seen a camera anywhere other than a red light camera uh, catch a license plate on a car that you were looking for in a, in a case, in a murder or a shooting. I've never, ever seen a camera catch that license plate. But on TV, they do it every single night. With 20 minutes of commercials. Too. 
You know? <laughs> they get facial wreck too. Of the guy yes. going through the red light, and they're always able to zoom in and see exactly who he is. And that's just not the way. Well, it is Melanie, the that's the only reason they cannot charge you points on your license when a red light camera catches you. As you know, I'm not teaching. I'm teaching. I know. I'm putting this out to our audiences because they can't identify the person who's driving. Mm-hmm. So they can just make you pay the money, but they can't give you points on your license. That would be unfair. Correct. I think the cameras are unfair, period. I think it's a, a cash register for, for municipalities. Yeah. They can't even say that word. I'm so nervous <laughs> about it. <laughs> Speed cameras are coming now, too. They're mailing tickets in the mail. That, too. They're here yeah. on Long Island. They've been in other states like Maryland for a long time um, where people are getting tickets in the mail So for speeding, which is a whole other animal. So but look, again, we, it can't be a moving violation. No, when we talk about you, we're talking about digital technology. I think, you know, I, I started out uh, on the NYPD in 1985. I, I did six and a half years in anti-crime, both as a cop and as a boss. Uh, that's a plainclothes unit that doesn't exist anymore. I know Lieutenant Peter Pranzo has probably got tears rolling down his eyes right now. He was a great street crime lieutenant and it was a very effective unit. Anyway, when cameras came out that, and cameras are all over the city, it is a game changer. It is a game changer because you can see what the perpetrator looked like uh, right after the commission of the crime. Sometimes you could see great pictures of their face. And the detective bureau, and not just the detective bureau, but the NYPD as a police force, has gone on television with pictures of of, uh, perpetrators from crimes and got them identified from the public through these cameras. So more, that's technology. Melanie, your thoughts? Yes, 100%. I agree with everything you said. And once a reward is involved, you get the call even quicker. Well, we saw that uh, to a great deal if you watch the Boston Marathon bombing. That's why, you know, and that was one of the things that we mentioned. We did a whole show on Howard Bloom, who's writing that series for that uh, new magazine. And he's writing, uh, uh, he has his fourth episode out. And he's writing a book about the Idaho uh, murders. And... um, he was questioning uh, like some of the technology, uh, also like the cameras and stuff like that. And again, you know, the cameras and the digital technology are also only as good as the people that are using it as an investigative resource and know how to use it and know how to collect the digital evidence. Because again, if you don't use it right, there's something called the fruits of the poisonous tree and if you don't use it right, you can lose it. Mike? Yeah, I mean, anybody who thinks that, uh, like we, you're talking with the CSI kind of idea, uh, if the fix was in and, you know, the FBI and state police and like, the uh, and say, in the Idaho murder case with Koberger, if the fix was in and, and they were being dishonest, they would have said, we have this pick, we have this Honda, Hyundai Elantra, Elantra, we have a, a out-of-state plate, and we could enhance this, and we could see Brian Koberger's face absolutely clear as day. We'd have his license plate clear as day, and therefore, we got him. But that's not the truth. That's not what happened. They tried the best that they could, and even with the best uh, photography, the best uh, 
uh, computer, the best people behind, uh, behind uh, manipulating it, investigating it, they still could not come up with his face. They still could not come up with his uh, license plate. So the fix isn't in. As great as this technology is, the fix isn't in. And I think people who uh, cry over the fact that uh, there's too much technology being used as if it's going to just send justice off the rails and result in um, in unwarranted convictions of innocent people, I think they're barked up the wrong tree. Uh, Midwest Girl 69, thank you for the $10 super sticker. And T is asking for the third time for evidentiary. I think it should be evidentiary, I think the word is, uh, from the prosecution. Why haven't they produced? Do they not have the damaging evidence as they say they do in the BK case? Is this lawful? You know, I'm not exactly sure, Midwest Girl, what case you're referring to, but in the BK case, it's very possible that the defense does have all the discovery and does know what the prosecution has, but there's a gag order. They're not allowed to tell what the prosecution has. So, And there's also a possibility that they don't have everything. But, Melanie, I think you had sort of said the last time that you felt that the defense did have all the discovery evidence. I know what she's referring to. There was a recent request for discovery and they're looking for the production of more uh, documents and more uh, DNA results and a lot of information that's very, very specific. So uh, I think perhaps if that stuff has not been turned over yet, the prosecution is either going to have to turn it over or to say that it doesn't exist. So you know, the discovery process is something that's long. I'm sure they were produced with boxes and boxes of stuff. So, you know, Ann Taylor is a great lawyer. She's meticulous. She's going to go through it. And if there's something that she doesn't see that she wants, she's going to ask for it. Um, so I think part of that discovery request is going to see, be able to see how they respond to it, whether they have it or they don't. She's putting them on the spot. You know, Melanie, it's always good to have a lawyer in the house when uh, <laughs> when, when the copper is just baffled. There's My no kids way. aren't going to agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Stop interrogating me. You know, let's get, get to the to the most um, probably important, uh, one of the most important discoveries of the 21st century, and that is DNA and DNA technology and the leaps and bounds it has grown in the past even 10 years, 15 years. Just incredible, this uh, investigative genetic genealogy. Now, people have made, uh, some people, not the informed people, some people have made light over the fact that there is touch DNA on the knife sheath that has been left in the bed of uh, Kaylee Gonsalves and, uh, Madison, it was, and Madison Mogan, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So some people have made light of that, but I think that's pretty hard to to explain away for any defense attorney. Mike? Uh, it's like saying that circumstantial evidence is unimportant compared to direct evidence. Oh, of course, uh, you know, touch DNA. It's, it is DNA. Um, you know, DNA has come a long way, especially after uh, the 9-11 attacks when you're trying to identify uh, all of the remains of people. Touch DNA is actually skin cells and that you can actually uh, break down and to see uh, what the DNA, basic DNA is. Years ago, it was you needed uh, a number of drops of blood, uh, like a amount that you would say the size of a quarter. 
And that was back in the like the late 80s, early 90s. Now, if you just touch something and just your skin cells get on to make contact with something like uh, a knife sheath, for instance, um, that is enough. That technology isn't brand new from last week. That's been around for a while and it's been tested time and time again. And anyone who thinks that, you know, we shouldn't be relying on time tested, uh, you know, extremely accurate to 99.9% kind of technology. I'm sorry. I, I feel it's, I, I understand they're, they're worried about big brother or some sort of technological issue, but if it's absolutely accurate and we, and we believe it is, and it's been around for a few years now, um, that is something really hard. That's not really any different than blood or, or skin or like a piece of someone's skin underneath fingernails of the victim. That's absolutely really important. And it's absolutely is carries the same amount of weight as, uh, as blood or anything else. Melanie, put on your attorney hat and explain to me how that, um, that DNA got there, the knife sheath got there. Explain to me how that happened. Well, here's what happened, you see. My client, Brian Koberger, went to a knife show where he picked up this knife and he was going to buy it, but he didn't buy it. But he put it back down on the table. And then the next guy who did buy it just happened to pick it up, buy that knife, and use that knife to murder four innocent, beautiful college students. Thank you. Do you, do, you, do you think any jury would believe that? No, I don't think so. And that's what, that's what I, I, I just, I can't understand even the argument. And, and, and I'm not a defense attorney and I'm also not a prosecutor. So everyone stop accusing me of picking sides because I'm really not picking sides. But here's something that maybe we can all relate to um, that has been around for a long time that is usually impossible to beat a trial, right? And that's the breathalyzer test. You cannot beat the breathalyzer test at trial. It's, it's virtually impossible. New York City will not even, inside of the five boroughs in New York City, you cannot even plea bargain one of those tickets down because the officer will come in, he will say the machine was calibrated, end of story, right? That's right. So, you know, DNA is much better evidence than a breathalyzer that could have been, I mean, who knows how old that machine is? Who really knows if it was really calibrated? I don't, you know, you don't know, but it's something that people just don't question. So eventually, I think touch DNA is going to become the same kind of thing that people just don't question. There's no other you know, way it could have gotten there. You know, there was a case um, in New York City, and uh, there was a police officer named, uh, by the name of Russell Tomashenko. Uh, and he and his partner pulled this car over. And the car, I believe, had uh, tinted windows. So they couldn't see inside the car. And as he approached the car, Gunfire erupted and uh, Officer Russell Timoshenko was killed. Uh, I believe his partner exchanged gunfire with the, there were four perps in the car. Uh, the doors opened, they all ran, they all ran out different ways. Inside the car, they found one of the guns used in the shooting and they found chicken. And they actually were able to lift the touch DNA off the trigger guard that identified. Russell Timoshenko's murderer. And they also identified uh, one or two of the other perps in the car through the chicken that they were eating, that they lifted DNA, I guess saliva, DNA off the chicken. So amazing work, amazing crime scene work. But this is what crime scene technicians and what the police are capable of doing. So now maybe the prosecution 
feels that they're slighted by the skills and the abilities of law enforcement in something like this. Mike. Yeah, it's, you know, if it, if the science is accurate and we, and it's been tested time and time again, um, then no one should have an issue with it because the, the lack of DNA at a crime scene may be considered, you know, um, some sort of ex, uh, exculpatory evidence. So it's hard to uh, imagine anyone not wanting, in, as prosecutor defense, not wanting, you know, reliable evidence to be introduced to trial because the evidence can benefit them or, or, or help implicate them. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see it. I don't know why. Absolutely. Okie dokie. Even with the DNA on the sheath, I sure hope he left other evidence there and brought some home and into his car from the crime scene. I'm guessing they do have way more. Let's see. Look, we were just, we take criticism on the show, which we're perfectly willing to take. And uh, as we say, we're, we're cops. We have thicker skin. We have that thick elephant skin, you know, rhinoceros skin, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, look, we understand. So we want, we need to say Brian Koberger is innocent to proven guilty. And we have presented some of the evidence and many people out there, they're making up scenarios. You know, some say he, he was the food delivery guy, you know, even though they have located that guy and uh, he's not the food delivery guy. So all of the evidence, and again, we talk about circumstantial evidence, that from which inferences are drawn is the definition of it. And uh, yeah, circumstantial evidence in itself isn't, all that powerful, except when there's seven tractor trailers full of it, you know, and then it becomes extremely powerful. Melanie. Right. Well, we're looking at the totality of the evidence. We're not just looking at DNA, DNA on a knife sheath. We're not just looking at video of the car where you can't see the license plate or the driver. We are not just looking at pings off cell phone or where that car was. It, when you put all of that stuff together, the totality of the evidence could lead a reasonable person to believe that they have the right guy. Now, a good defense attorney could also argue that they don't have the right guy and be able to explain all of these things. So, you know, that happened in Murdoch too. They tried in their closing argument to argue all of the things that the prosecution did not do, the things they did not test, the fact that they did not find any blood spatter on his t-shirt. And they tried to tie it all together. And in the end, the jury decided what the jury decided and they convicted him. Well, so Melanie and, and Mike, uh, we also have heard talk of the Brady-Giglio uh, situation. And that also could be a smokescreen from uh, the defense. Or it could be something very real that officers that are involved in this case, maybe now they may not be as swearable if they have a, a serious issue with that. Mike? Yeah, the... Um... Years and years ago, we went through this issue. If you remember, Billy, back in like the late '90s, early 2000s, with in the NYPD, with the uh, you know defense attorneys wanting to get uh, a police officer, an arresting officer, or arresting detectives, um, you know, disciplinary file, and to you know basically go fishing to attack the the officer personally on the stand, you know that sort of thing. Um, and sometimes it, it will work, like we saw in the O.J. Simpson case with uh, with um, Mark. I 
can't Mark think of Furman. Yeah, Mark Furman. Thank you, Mark Furman. And uh, it just tainted the jury. And uh, that's the risk you take. And you hope that whatever, you know, uh, record that any of the uh, officers have or investigators have, it doesn't amount to anything. But um, it could be anything from, you know, being chronically late to roll call and you get a CD or it could be something much more, uh, much more, uh, you know, damaging. But um, that's something that we've had to deal with in law enforcement and the NYPD for, for a generation now. And, you know, you're still getting uh, cases made. You're still getting cases presented to the jury. You're still getting convictions. And I, I think really the defense needs to do this because they're zealously advocating for their client. I mean, uh, he's going to have Koberger has a great attorney. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's prepared. She's done death penalty cases like this before, you know, death penalty cases before. Um, so they're going as hard as they can after at every single angle they possibly can. And, and that's their right. And that's their, um, you know, that's their ethical obligation. But at the end of the day, will it damage the evidence? As Melanie says, you take the totality of all the evidence. I, I don't think so. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like podcasts from a real crime perspective, from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, make comments. We love to read your comments. We like to answer your comments. Uh, we also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us financially. And we have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And you see the folks with the green font in the chat. They're part of our YouTube family. And we really appreciate our fans, our friends, our subscribers. And that's what makes Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories what it is. You know, one of the things I wanted to tie in here, too, and we're talking about evidence, is they find this knife sheath with DNA on it. Now, allegedly or it would make sense that the knife that was contained inside that sheath was a Marine Corps K-Bar knife. Now, if these wounds are consistent with a knife of that type, the pathologist who conducts the autopsies will probably test that and even have a K-Bar type knife to compare against the wounds that he or she sees uh, in the autopsy. Now, that's another big thing that we don't even know about. We don't know, and we've always, we said from the very beginning, look, potentially one or more of these uh, victims fought, fought back, and potentially they could have DNA in the scrapings of skin or blood underneath their fingernails or hair or fibers or something like that. So we don't know the results of the autopsy. So again, we connect the knife sheath with the DNA. It's connected to Brian Koberger. Now, do the wounds fit the knife that was potentially used in this case? Melanie? I don't know the answer to that question, but we will find out. And I'm sure they'll find an exemplar knife that belongs to that sheath. And they will, you know, there will be a lot of experts testifying about all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Mike? Yeah, if you can't find the ac actual knife and you um, have a, a pathologist testify as to the basic size and dimensions of the knife, the length, the, the, the hilt, the, 
the uh, thickness of the blade, um, you know, that's that's allowable, but it's going to give the defense tremendous amount of leeway to make the argument like you're just hypothesizing at that point. And because um, that's what I would do as, as a defense attorney. I'd, I'd be I'd be all over that. If you didn't find it now, you're just hypothesizing. No murder weapons in Murdoch. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's the other thing is what is the, what the digital uh, evidence proved was that he had a lot of time to get rid of his clothing and time to get rid of the murder weapon and time to wash up because he was doing 80 miles an hour, which again, other digital evidence told us from his car computer, he was doing 80 miles an hour. Why was he doing that? He tossed his wife's phone out his window. So all from digital evidence, we know those things. So when we read the New York Times gentleman's article about that, we're like, what are you talking about, dude? You know, this is so, so important. Angel D, how could they get the DNA dismissed as belonging to BK? Then what happens? Thank you. Uh, Mike, you want to answer that? I'm sorry. Could you say the question one more time? I'm yes. How could they get the DNA dismissed as belonging to BK? Then what happens? Thank you. I mean, if I mean, they've done several tests. They did uh, after they arrested Brian Koberger, they took several samples to compare. And so as so long as they follow the procedures for processing the DNA and, and they get a result, if it backs up the familial DNA that that they got off of the um, uh, the, the sheath with the touch DNA, then he's you know, he's in a lot of trouble. Um, how could you get that sort of thing? Dis, uh, you mean in a in a pre pre trial kind of um, exclusionary kind of hearing? To ex um, is maybe that's what he's talking about? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. Um, you know, you'd have to be able to argue that the technology used was inherently unreliable, so therefore it's compromised, perhaps, and that it should not have been asserted to be 99.9999% belonging to his father, or if it was gathered without um, a search warrant, you know, they could say that the police officer's seizure of that evidence was unconstitutional. But um, that's about the only two ways I think you could actually probably attack it in, 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 in any way, shape or form. I'm not sure. Maybe Melanie could come up with another uh, I was just thinking like maybe chain of custody issues or something. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so somebody, Mary Stitt, says in the chat curious if any of the investigating officers who were known to lie under oath could that be a brady issue and affect the case well i know brady issue is exculpatory evidence and giglio issues are any uh internal affairs problems that any of the investigating detectives or police officers law enforcement may have had there is some rumbling about uh one of the officers who's in, involved in the investigation who was involved in another investigation in 2016, where it was alleged that they withheld evidence from the defense. It was video evidence. If you want to look it up, it's called Stickergate. And I think Officer Nunez was one of the officers who was involved in the Koberger, who was also involved in Stickergate, uh, where they the police did not turn over video evidence that they had until the eve of trial. And when they did turn it over, there was no audio. So there were a lot of issues there. And I, don't, I think there's still a civil case pending that has now been adjourned until after the Koberger 
preliminary hearing. So it's going to be interesting because the defense knows about it. So, you know, again, that's something that a jury would weigh or that a judge would weigh, you know, how important was this officer to the investigation, you know, but that's what I think the issue is that they brought up. You know, there's a, I, this was um, available a month or two ago, but I just saw it recently and it's someone for news nation made a 3d video of a reenactment of the, the murders of uh, Ethan Chapin, Hazena Canodal, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonsalves. I'm going to play a little bit of it because when we're talking about evidence, here's, here's evidence that was put out there by a civilian that isn't even part of law enforcement. And it's very, very compelling. Brian Kohlberger, the suspect, is believed to have entered the neighborhood at 3.29 a.m. Approaching the house, he noticed the lights are on. This hinders his plan, and he now has to rethink things. He continues on to the back where he sees even more lights on. From the affidavit, we know he drove by the house three times in less than five minutes, probably trying to figure out what to do next. He finally decides to leave the area for a little while and observes the lights are on one last time in front as he drives off. Cameras show him leaving the neighborhood and exiting on Walenta Drive in this direction. It's uncertain which way he went from this point here, but we know that he is seen here at this location at 3.45 a.m., caught on a gas station security camera. Wondering if this could truly be a 2015 Elantra I downloaded a known image of one with a similar angle of view. I then entered that into a 3D modeling software and added some lighting and then tilted the camera to get a similar angle. I then animated the image to be traveling at 40 miles per hour, giving motion blur, which ended with this result. Though not scientific, we can see very close similarities that this is a 2015 Elantra. Back to the map. We see the suspect re-enters the neighborhood at 4.04 a.m. He drives up to the house and slows down. Looking at the windows, he sees the lights are now off. Continuing to the back, he checks to see if those lights are off. They are. He's excited. He knows everyone is finally in bed, but he wants to check the front one last time. As he drives down, he's filled with adrenaline, seeing the lights are all off. His brain short circuits for a second as he clumsily tries to turn around in front of the house. It fails, but he regains composure and drives on. He's caught on camera making a three-point turn at the end of the street to return back to the residence. He does his final drive to the back of the house. In the beginning, most of us believed the two surviving roommates, Bethany and Dylan, were sleeping on the first floor. Since then, we've learned Dylan was sleeping here on the second floor, along with Zanna and Ethan located here. Kaylee and Madison were located here on the third floor. The dog was located on the third floor and the room by itself. Let's move around and see through the walls into the kitchen, to the back slider, and take a look at the time frames. At 4.04 a.m., the suspect can be seen trying to park his car. At 4.09, approximately five minutes later, 
He enters the house through the backslider. At 418, he leaves the house after committing the crimes. At 420, he's caught on camera driving away at a high rate of speed. All of this only took nine minutes. Let's watch what that looks like. The suspect enters through the back sliding door. He pauses at the stairs to look around to make sure no one's up. He then turns and goes upstairs. The first bedroom he stops at and opens the door, he sees no one there. He continues to the next bedroom. Here we know what happens. Downstairs, Dylan is sleeping. The noise from upstairs wakes her up. She thinks it's Kaylee playing with her dog. She gets up and goes to the door and looks out. She sees nothing there. The suspect then continues down the stairs about three minutes later. He then heads to Zana's room. Outside, there's a security camera picking up some whimpering, cries in the thud at 417. We've learned that Xana was found on the floor, which might explain the thud. Dylan again hears something and looks outside her door. She sees the suspect. He walks right past her and leaves. Amazing, right? Here you have, that's the first, I, I mean, I know that was out for a while, was the first time I saw it. How much digital evidence was was used in that? I mean, of what she's recreating. Of course, how about the real video where he's seen pulling in and doing a U-turn and leaving and coming back? How powerful is that evidence? And again, we don't know by the cameras because we can't catch his license plate and we can't catch his face in the car. But when we connect the dots of the other evidence, will it be hard for a jury to believe that that was Brian Koberger driving that car? Not if they can place his cell phone at the same time, at the same place, you know, all those different places his car was and his cell phone was pinging from the same place. I think that's, um, well, that, that's the problem with him arriving on the scene. He self his cell phone is off, so it's not going to ping by there. But later on, fleeing, he mm -hmm. turns his cell phone on at some point, and the same car is seen flying by that that infamous gas station. And of course, they connect the dots with him going back to Pullman, Washington, and then they connect the dots of him coming back at nine a.m. where he turns his cell phone back on. I mean, remember, folks that are listening, the word reasonable. Can you connect those dots and reasonably believe that they have the right guy? Professor Mike. Yeah, Billy, you know, as Melanie said before, jurors don't leave their common sense as they go, you know, to deliberate. You're going to use your trial to determine what you, how, what you believe about a particular witness, how reliable they were, how credible they were. And this is all, you know, 100% circumstantial evidence is very powerful circumstantial evidence. Um, because there is cameras, there is that the whimpering sound, the thud that was heard on a, on a doorbell camera. They've got the, uh, the, you know, cell phone being turned on and being turned off. Him leaving Washington, he returning to Washington at a particular time, being caught on the, on the camera by the gas station, the convenience store. All of that builds up slowly but surely to a very solid circumstantial evidence case, absolutely rock solid. Now, 
obviously he's entitled to have his defense attorney say whatever they want and they can say whatever they want. They can come up with some sort of plausible explanation to them, but will it be plausible to 12 jurors using their common sense saying, uh, I'm going to disregard the DNA evidence. I'm going to disregard the pinging of the cell phone. I'm going to disregard, you know, the, the cameras. And I'm going to go with what the what the defense has to say. I don't think so. I, I don't think so. People use their common sense. Melanie, I'd like you to answer, read and answer Dinky 1974 on the screen. Okay. Hey, Dinky. If that, well, first, Nikki Bella says, please leave your DNA on that like button. button. And I thought that was so funny. So please leave your <laughs> DNA on that like, like button, says Nikki Bella. That's a tongue twister. Uh, okay. Dinky 1974. If that video is accurate, he would have been covered in blood jumping into his car and there would have been a blood trail. Well, that video, you're talking about the video that we just watched. That was a recreation video. I don't know who made that video. It was excellent, and it just I'm in, in amazement because I'm so technologically not advanced. Something like that would never be admitted at trial. I think we can agree at that on that, Mike, right? Never. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know what video that you're talking about. Is there a video of him getting into his car that we – Well, yes, Melanie, there's the, there's the real video. There is real Yeah, the real video, video but is there a video of him I, getting I'd into like the to, car? Yeah, I'd like to also partially answer that. Right. This – the murders occurred on November 13th. He wasn't arrested till December 30th. So he, if he was wearing, say, a Tyvek jumpsuit that he could dis or something like that, he could discard that after the crimes had been committed, along with the knife, along with uh, whatever else he trailed into his car. And he could clean his car numerous times. However, We've seen people clean their cars numerous times, and there is still evidence of a murder, blood, specks of blood, speck of DNA, hairs, fibers. It's very difficult for someone to forensically clean their car so well that people that process it for evidence won't be able to recover anything. So I hope we answered your question. But again, the murders happened on November 13th. He wasn't arrested till December 30th. Is he saying there would have been a blood trail coming out of the house and that would have been part of the crime scene? Um, you know, again, like you said, and I hate to start rumors and I hate to, you know, say anything that's not true. And I am not saying that this is true, but I have seen people say that maybe somebody saw a naked man running out of the house or something. Like, let's just say what you said is true. And he had a Tyvek suit on, right? And he stripped down. So that he wouldn't leave a blood trail outside the house. That would explain a naked man. Although I don't know where I heard that or if it's even true, but it's been reported. Don't quote me on that. Well, I think there's a much more distinct possibility that he wore like a, a jumpsuit that he discarded after the crime. Because remember, he was a forensic student, Hunters right? wear those things. Uh, hunt, you can buy them in any mm -hmm. hunting store. One of those camouflage. Well, it doesn't have to be camouflage. It could be any color. But it, it basically covers your entire body. And whether he obviously, if the shoe, the bloody shoe print uh, was his, then he obviously didn't cover his shoes with the little booties they wear in crime scenes. Um, so that is also, a, if that is true, and they can compare that to a shoe that he owned and getting to more uh, forensic evidence or more digital evidence, they've probably done a complete financial on him. Every single time he used his credit or debit card uh, in a store or online or to get money, 
any of those times, that also can tell a story. Mike. Yeah, if he purchased that, um, if it's if it he truly is a killer and he did purchase a K, a Marine K bar knife online, like through Amazon or something like that, um, they're gonna there's gonna be a record of it. And that's that's again circumstantial evidence of guilt. So we, even if they don't actually have recover the knife to be able to say, you know, he actually purchased the type of knife that we believe was used in the killing, then um, that that's wonderful evidence. But yeah, as the uh, as the viewer said, you know, would there be a blood trail? Yeah, there's going to be some blood, and um, yeah, there's going to be blood in that car. But he probably washed that car. Um, I'm sure half a dozen times, you know, trying to get, in fact, wasn't he seen in Pennsylvania actually at 4 a.m. or something like that, washing his car, you know, so he probably washed that car a number of times. Now, now there's probably not a lot of blood left in it, but there's going to be enough blood uh, drop here, drop there. All you need is one drop of evidence of Xander Canodal's or Ethan Chapin's blood right there in that car. And that's and that's a tremendous uh, a hill that he can't climb over. He can't explain that away. How about the fact that they recovered one of the victim's student IDs from his house? Now, I, is that true that they yeah. actually, actually one of their IDs? Mm -hmm. Okay, I one, didn't know somebody who lived actually, in the house. Okay, and I, other uh, it's a, and other ones, but okay. so he had more than one. But one of the ones that he had was from one of the people in the house. It, that he's at that point you look you know it's like we can a defense attorney can come up with all kinds of wild explanations but the jury's as you said melanie the jury's going to use their common sense you know just getting to what the theme of this show was of, of technology we talk about uh video surveillance which of course we have on this and it was became that when we first heard the first big clue was we're looking for a white Hyundai Elantra. And I remember when they first said, oh, it's just a witness we're looking for. I was like, bullshit. That's the perp's car. And you know it, you know, I because I know we've said that before, too, uh, you know, to, to cover up how important this witness was. So, again, video cameras, license plate readers. And in the case of the murders, they also had audio. Of, of of some whimpering from that room. So that's how close. So how important, again, when you, we talk about all these things that also become, you know, circumstantial evidence, but so, so, so important, Melanie. What about the body cam footage of the two traffic stops on the way uh, on his road trip with his dad back to Pennsylvania? They got the body cam footage from those two traffic stops. We got the body cam footage from, uh, I think it was a month before um, the murders of him getting pulled over by one of the uh, university police at his they university. They actually have that the traffic stop here. video. I can play a little yeah. bit of that. Just if anybody hasn't seen this, it's interesting. That's technically a ticketable violation. And then thus, then you're running a red light. So it's another ticketable offense. So you're not supposed to proceed into the intersection until you can go. Because a lot of people do what you just did, right? Is like you're sitting in the intersection yeah. waiting and then turns... Then you're blocking, so. Yeah, there was a little bit of confusion with speeding because someone had stopped. I wasn't sure what they were doing, and then they put on their light to turn. Mm -hmm. So I thought that maybe they were letting me go through. Oh. Did you see that? No. Mm -mm. I feel like right before I made the turn, there was someone who like, made a right. They didn't have their, you know, their signal on, so I wasn't sure if they were just waiting. 
see this plastic tote right here? Well, I'm going to show you something. Sorry, guys. I didn't mean to play <laughs> that, but that just, uh, that's showing his, his demeanor. He is a real person. He uh, speaks real English and he's articulate. And uh, what does that tell us about him, Mike? You know, he's, he's one of the, what it teach, teaches us and we learn from it is that, you know, if true, then the, there is a banality of evil. Um, he could be uh, your next door neighbor. He could be the, the kid in the, in the grocery store bagging oh, groceries. Um, you know, he's, he could, he's doesn't look like some, something out of a comic book, you know, some graphic comic novel. Um, so therefore we, sh we should understand that, you know, you, you're seeing the banality of evil coming alive and uh, he's acting as an ordinary uh, person and there's uh, nothing that would give this, uh, give him away. Melanie. Uh, somebody asked whether this was in Washington or Idaho. It was in Washington. And yeah. uh, she goes on to explain to, he says, well, you know, in Pennsylvania, we, you know, we go up, we, we move into the intersection. And then, you know, when the light turns, we make our turn. I'm really not familiar with it because I'm from Pennsylvania. And she says, well, here in Washington, this is how we do it. And you're not supposed to enter the intersection until, and, and he sort of, um, I mean, I had never really heard his voice before. So this was eye-opening to me. And I think it's eye-opening to a lot of people. You could, you could take this one of two ways. You could say, wow, he's really respectful. Um, he was uh, very nice and he tried to explain himself very calmly and he didn't go berserk and he, he seemed like a very nice, respectful young man. Uh, you could also say, well, you know, people thought that about Ted Bundy too. You know, he was very uh, affable. He was uh, charming. And who knows? Somebody, somebody, a couple of people are, are noticing how clean his car was then, a month before the murder. It's like maybe there was a little OCD involved. He kept his car super clean all the time. So, especially in a, in a Midwest town, it's going to have salt on the roads all the time from the snow, and your car gets, uh, you almost don't want to wash your car because it just gets super dirty again when you ride to the slush, so right? Dirtier than most. Yeah. Midwest girl, 69. Thank you for the $2 super sticker. If this goes to trial, you'll guess how long. I think this will be, if this does go to trial, I think you're talking a, a three to six month trial, I think. I think it'd be a pretty damn oh, long No, trial. I mean, when, oh, I, how long will the trial be or how long yeah. until it will get to trial? I wasn't sure. Yeah, that's a good, so, yeah. Yeah, the preliminary I, hearing is scheduled for June 26. It's going to be five days. Uh, you know, if if he's then, you know, they say there's probable cause to go to trial on these charges, then he will make a plea. He'll plead not guilty or guilty. And then I don't know how long it would take to get to trial, Mike. Yeah, I, I could see this trial taking place, you know, before before next summer, sometime in the early spring, maybe um, March, something like that. But it, it would last longer than the uh, Murdoch trial. Definitely. And that was six weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah. I could see it lasting longer than that. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it to be a, a three to six month trial because, first of all, when they go to the hearings on June 26th, uh, whatever's decided, the case is going to be put off till September at least. They're not going to oh, yeah, work. There's no summer. They're not going to work over the summer. There's there's no way. The, the big thing now, and we've spoke about this before, is will they lift the gag order? Because that's of course what everyone, uh, well, not everyone, but many people, the press, the families. They want the gig order um, lifted so that they can speak. The family would like to speak 
and without uh, being told that they can't by the court. Melanie, what are your feelings? Uh, they're going to have a hearing on the gag order. They, uh, a, a number of media outlets brought an action in the Supreme Court of Idaho, which uh, the Supreme Court said this is not the right court to bring the action in. They're, they're tossing it back to uh, Megan, Megan Marshall, who is the judge um, at the district court level, and she is going to have a hearing on this at the end of May, which is about a month before the preliminary hearing. She will either rule from the bench or she will uh, reserve decision and then issue a written decision at some later date. And at that point, uh, if uh, it's lifted, then someone can appeal. You know, it could it could take a very long time. But right now, both sides have agreed to the gag order. That's how the gag order happened in the first place. So it's really the families of the victims, lawyers who want it lifted in the media. Absolutely. You know, I think the big thing that uh, I, I can understand why, why the family uh, wants to talk, but I think that a lot of um, misinformation has been put out by the press and a lot, of, also a lot of good information has been put out also. But when they don't get what they want, it gets scary about the things that somehow get invented. And uh, that's that what that's what concerns me more. And when they when certain stations put out, we have a source close to the investigation. That's pretty bothersome to me because that either means they don't have anyone or and they're making stuff up, or B, they have a law enforcement person who is breaking the law by giving uh, the broadcast news uh, information. Mike? Yeah, I hope the gag order stays in place because we've seen the feeding frenzy that took place earlier on uh, between the time of the of the murders, uh, November 13th, and his arrest on December 30th. Um, the the was the uh, hot dog van guy, the food van guy, uh, the bartender. All of these people were bothered, harassed, crazy stuff created out of you know fiction completely. Um, I, I, I mean, I have no idea how, how it would be to have ha what happened to those four lovely, the parents of those four lovely people. Um, I, I can't imagine. But I think overall, it's, it has, you know, this is a trial about Koberger's guilt or innocence. And I think it's, we got to be very cognizant of the fact that he deserves uh, to be tried by a jury that has, that, that hasn't made, been exposed to all kinds of crazy conspiracy stuff all over the place um there's going to be uh, obviously a, a request for a change of venue um i'm sure about that but um i want to see the gag order stay in place because i think that ensures the best jury pool that you can possibly have that's going to be fair to brian Koberg because you know that's 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 what's most important i think in this case at this time you know there are two things um Melanie, and this is just the prediction. A, mm -hmm. will there be a change of venue? And B, will will there be a request for cameras in the courtroom? And will it be allowed or disallowed? Well, um, the Daybell trial is currently in Idaho as well, correct? We're covering so many trials right now. Anybody in the chat? Yeah, the Ida is also in Idaho, and there are no cameras in the courtroom. That is an audio feed only. I do not think they will allow cameras in the courtroom. Uh, will they get a change of venue? I don't know. 
I don't know. Mike, um, what do you think? I think we will know a lot more after the preliminary hearing about the evidence that they do have. So that is one thing somebody was asking in the chat. And I think, you know, that'll be a public proceeding. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's going to be hard to find any place in Idaho, any county in Idaho that has not been exposed to the same amount of stuff that's been produced, uh, good and bad. Some of it's been great. Some of it's been lowly. But, I'd, you know, it's a very small state in terms of the population. And you don't, you know, the, uh, who knows if, if it'll be successful where, you know, because if you're going to ask for a change of venue, um, you're probably going to be asking as a defense attorney for let's put it here in a, in a more populous location to maybe get a more uh, diverse population that hasn't been personally affected because we do it in Leyta County. There's too many people here that that you know have too much personal stake in this. So therefore, let's have a more objective jury. I don't know what the, what uh, Judge Marshall is going to do, but um, they they may be successful, they may not. But there's there's not going to be anybody in Idaho that's going to be like, oh, I haven't heard of this case yet. I've made up, you know. No, it's it's going to be very difficult, I think, to get a change of venue and and, and and just to start off with. I don't see it. Someone just asked who makes the decision of whether or not cameras in the courtroom. That's the decision by, of the judge. Will the trial that. judge. And I don't know that she would be the trial judge in yeah. this case. I think she's just handling the pretrial stuff and then maybe it gets assigned to another judge for trial. So I'm not sure exactly how this county works. But I thought I read that somewhere that it could be assigned to a different judge for trial. You know, we're in an hour and five minutes. I just wanted to quickly go to a couple of other digital things, which, of course, is social media. And we don't know uh, for a fact if Brian Koberger was, in fact, participated on Instagram or whatever. That It's been alleged, but we don't know. It's just We just have rumors to that effect. That also could be very powerful evidence. But again, uh, we won't know that until the hearings. Uh, Melanie? Yeah. Um, you know, there's been some subpoenas for Tinder, for Google searches, for uh, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Reddit. You know, there's been some chatter that maybe he was participating in some Reddit groups asking for surveys for you know they're gonna have to tie all this stuff back to him if they get it but yeah that could be really powerful evidence if they if, if it's proven that he was you know looking at one of the girls on social media for you know many many months leading up to this you know that could lead to some sort of a indication of stalking uh he could have been chatting with one or more of them we just don't know i mean we're going to find a lot more out of the preliminary hearing and there will, will be Reporters allowed in the hearing, in the courtroom, live tweeting. So buckle up. Mike? Yeah, buckle up. We're gonna, <laughs> it's going to be a feeding frenzy. And I, I hope they uh, allow audio, perhaps, but not not the video. Um, I, I was thinking of the Kyle Rittenhouse case and uh, the prosecutor waving uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's firearm around. And it was kind of embarrassing because once you bring in the cameras, uh, people play to the cameras and uh, I think it's justice is best served by having like an audio feed uh, or, or, or nothing. 
I think you're right. I mean, especially those of us old enough to have watched the uh, O.J. Simpson case. Mm -hmm. uh, both sides so played to the cameras, it got a little bit disgusting. And um, I, I, I think that cameras in the courtroom doesn't benefit either the defendant or the prosecution. I think it's best left to sort of a private affair where, you know, well, you say that potentially there could be an audio feed, which probably isn't as invasive as, you know, having cameras. Well, the West trial is one that's going right on right now. The uh, Orrin and Orson West, who uh, their parents, their foster, then adoptive parents, Trizelle and Jacqueline West, are on trial for murdering them in Kern County, California. The trial's not getting enough coverage, and it should. But there is only an audio feed available for that trial, and it's only when court is in session you cannot record it. You cannot broadcast it. So you have to listen to it live, which which makes it, you know, a lot more people have to really want to listen to it, you know, and maybe that's something that should be considered. Um, I, I don't see that in this case because this Koberger is, you know, getting far more attention than the West case is. But that is something that is is done in certain cases. You know, we didn't even totally touch upon all the digital evidence, of course, uh, Brian Koberger's computers in his uh, apartment in uh, Pullman, Washington, uh, the computers in his family's house in Pennsylvania, uh, his cell phone, uh, the vehicle's computer. So all of the, that digital evidence also may, well, not may, will come into play uh, if they find some evidence in there that uh, is you know, favors the prosecution, they can present this evidence. So again, the digital footprint that someone that commits a crime like this leaves uh, either, well, unintentionally uh, is is such powerful, powerful evidence. Mike? Yeah, you, you know, it's reliable. A, it's reliable. B, it's usually time-stamped. And C, it's been proven to be accurate. And if it's accurate, and, it, you know, and it's reliable, then nobody should have any uh, qualms about admitting into evidence. I was thinking as you're talking, you know, uh, his laptop, obviously, they're going to and his parents laptops, but also a lot of uh, computer labs in colleges uh, have, um, you know, have video cameras, uh, you know, security cameras. And so if he logged on and did any sort of um, and there's video of him logging on at a particular time, particular date at a particular uh, location with a particular laptop that belongs to the college, they could actually probably figure out what he was doing on that laptop. So he might have been uh, smart enough to do some, uh, if there is in stalking involved, cyber stalking, he might've done some from uh, a, a laptop belonging to the University of Washington. Good point. But again, everything these days is tracked. Yeah. There is a yeah. footprint on everything. You know, I just want to do a quick uh, commercial. Folks, if you're looking for a great defense attorney in the New York City area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe is a retired NYPD police officer and a fantastic uh, defense attorney. You can reach Joe at uh, on his cell at 718-514-3855 or email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. He has a website, jmurray-law.com. He happens to be a fantastic attorney and also a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories podcast. 
Guys, we've, we've been on the air for over an hour and 11 minutes, so I'm going to uh, give you your last thoughts. And um, I'd like to say ladies first, but I'm not going to do that. Mike, I'm going to let you give your thoughts first. <laughs> wow, really? I'm going to go to Melanie last. I favor Melanie, so I'm going to let you go first, Mike. I think just for all the viewers to, you know, be patient and just pay attention to uh, the Brian Koberger case very closely because you'll you'll learn a lot. And especially when it comes to the preliminary hearing where the prosecutor is going to present enough evidence to establish probable cause um, that there's going to be it's, it'll be a lot of technical information that the public may not have been aware of. And I think people will probably feel a lot better about the prosecutor's prosecution's case after they see the preliminary hearing. Absolutely. Melanie, your final thoughts. I'm going to say that, you know, this digital evidence uh, can also be used to exonerate him if it exists. Listen, if he says, I was at 7-Eleven between 4 o'clock and 4.20 shopping for hot Cheetos because I couldn't find him anywhere else. Go there. There's going to be video of me there. That's right. That can all be used to his advantage to exonerate him. So listen, if he wasn't there, there could be video of him somewhere else. And, uh, you know, or cell phone data or metadata or, you know, Google searches or any location data. And, you know, that's up to his team to prove it. If it exists, let's see it. Excellent point, Melanie. I knew you would come through and that's why I <laughs> picked you to go last. <laughs> anyway, folks, thank you. This is our show for this evening. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Have a great night and God bless. Hit the like button. The like button. You do DNA on the like button. That's yeah. right. <laughs> One episode just ain't enough. Get a laughter.